Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Alan Phelps is the former foreign editor of the Daily Telegraph and an expert on Russian politics. He's the author of a new book called The Red Hotel, which tells the story of Moscow's Metropole Hotel and the journalists who stayed there in the Second World War. The book reveals both the scope and sophistication of Stalin's propaganda machine and the heroism of the translators who fought to expose the truth about life in the Soviet Union. I sat down with Alan earlier this year to find out more and to ask Alan for his thoughts on what relevance this history has for the invasion of Ukraine. Alan, you have a lifelong fascination with Russia, which you inherited from your mother, and you've spent a significant portion of your life as a journalist reporting from and about Russia. How did that begin? Well, it began when I was a teenager. I just started learning Russian at school. And that sounds a bit odd these days because not many people learn Russian. But this was at a time of a so-called thaw during the sort of Khrushchev time when after Stalin died, people thought, wow, maybe we're all going to be friends with Russia. So we need to have some people to speak Russian. And the Nuffield Foundation, which is does all kinds of things educational, came up with a, a brand new audiovisual course, which was very fashionable at the time. You didn't see the written script. Uh, you just did everything by ear, which is a brilliant way to learn the language. When I was beginning to learn, my mother took me on a in-tourist tour you know, to Russia. She had a great fondness for Russia because she had been born in North China of uh, minor colonial parents who had a business there. And um, she was uh, she had a Russian governess, well, sort of nanny, really, a Russian governess who was employed to speak French to her. But uh, amid all the French, she learned about the um, uh, all those Russian fairy tales and the houses on chickens' feet and Baba Yaga, the witch who rides on a broomstick. So she always had a, a, a fondness, a fondness for Russia. And I remember staying in the Metropole Hotel, which is um, the locus of my book. It's called the Red Hotel. And um, at that time, it was rather down on its luck, should we say? It was. It had. A, it was famous. It had been uh, the best hotel in 1905, but uh, by the early 70s, um, it had slightly come down in the world. And I remember we used to eat in a sort of lean-to sort of cafe on the edge of it, and they had, as usual in those times, uh, a huge menu of items most of which were, were unavailable, but we didn't know that before. And uh, so I saw a dish which said, because it was translated into English, uh, chicken and apples. And I thought, that must be a mistake. It must be, they must mean chicken and potatoes, because in French menus, pomme means both apples and potatoes. I was a very nerdy, very annoying schoolboy, as you can imagine. So I said, right, I will have the chicken and apples, and we will see that it's chicken and potatoes. Well, indeed, it was chicken and very stunted sort of golf ball size apples uh, in, a, in a watery sauce. So after that, we just ate what was called the stalichny, the capital salad, which was uh, a bit of chicken uh, and lots of mayonnaise and a few vegetables, like sort of pin, tinned peas and things. But that uh, that kept us alive anyway. After that, I didn't study Russian at, at university, but uh, I did get a job as a trainee reporter with Reuters because they needed people to, to go to Russia. 
and uh, I sort of I improved my Russian, and I was the trainee in 7980, and that was the time when Brezhnev uh, was in his dotage, and uh, it was what the Russians called the era of stagnation, when not very much was happening. Uh, the country was beginning to live quite comfortably on its oil revenues, and any idea of fermenting worldwide revolution had uh, long since gone. And I spent a year then, and I came back in 85, which was the beginning of the Gorbachev era, uh, when everything began to change. That was really exciting. Unfortunately, I didn't last long there, because uh, there was an exchange of spies. It turned out that Gordievsky, uh, the top man of the KGB in London, had been working for MI6 all along. And after he um, escaped from Russia and found uh, found safety in Britain, the Russians were mighty, mightily cross anyway. Margaret Thatcher expelled lots of Russians and the Russians expelled me and others. I'm not sure that um, uh, when I was <laughs> when I was asked if I was a spy, I, I always said, well, I didn't really have time to set up my net network. I'd only been there about three months. <laughs> Anyone who knew me and my wife could tell I wasn't a spy because the way you could tell tell a spy couple in those days, and they usually were couples, was that the stress of being a spy was very much reflected on the spouse. So if the man um, was relaxed, chatty and backslapping, you could guarantee that the stress was all focused on, on his poor missus. Uh, who was in a, a state of anxiety all the time. My wife is quite bubbly. <laughs> She's a Russian teacher, or was a Russian teacher, so very useful at the time. And on the evening of my expulsion, she was interviewed by the by the BBC radio. I'm working for Reuters at that time, Reuter correspondents were supposedly above all that kind of stuff and didn't, didn't speak to, uh, didn't make any public statements. And uh, she was asked, is your husband a spy? And she said, oh, no, his Russian isn't good enough. <laughs> that went down like a lead balloon with Reuters. And the news editor, when I came back, came back, said to me, said to me, you said your Russian was very good. Well, I think it's pretty good. My Rus but my wife is a Russian teacher, so she has very high standards. The whole interview, Reuters demanded, <laughs> demanded a transcript of the whole interview from the BBC, and it was circulated among the board. And um, uh, well, I didn't feel I could stay there, stay at Reuters forever, and I worked for various other people. Regardless of whether or not you were actually a spy, it's still a badge of honour to have been expelled from the USSR. Let's go back to the beginning of the Red Hotel. Who built the Hotel Metropole and why? The Metropole was built in, in 1905. It was a sort of a joint effort between um, British and uh, Russian architects. It was funded by the rich merchants in Russia. The capital, of course, was, was in St. Petersburg, then became Leningrad, but is now St. Petersburg again. So uh, there were no bureaucrats there, but there were wealthy individuals who were progressive in their views and were famous for a very advanced taste in art. The huge collections of Impressionist paintings and post-Impressionist paintings, which you can see in museums in Moscow now, these were all collected by these sugar barons and uh, wheat, uh, wheat merchants. 
And so this was their sort of, uh, this was their baby, their place to show off. And uh, it opened in, in 1905 when the first revolution happened, and not a successful revolution, the first revolution against Nicholas II, when there were strikes all over the country. And one of the first big events uh, was a, a fundraising dinner uh, to raise money for the for the striking workers, which was quite odd given the fact that people were very were wealthy businessmen. And um, Shelyapin, uh, the famous bass uh, singer, uh, probably the most famous Russian singer of the time, who was actually the son of a peasant, he stood up uh, on the table and sang the song of the Volga boatman, which was the anthem of the revolution at the time. Obviously, the revolution didn't work at that time, but it did happen 12 years later in 1917. And how did the hotel fare under Lenin? Well, Lenin moved the capital from the shores of the Baltic to back to Moscow, where it had been uh, up until up until the 18th century. But there was nowhere for the bureaucrats to live and no offices for them because it had been the people of St. Petersburg used to call Moscow a city of 400 churches, which was rather dismissive. That wasn't quite fair. So uh, they commandeered the two big hotels, the National and the Metropole, and called them the first and second house of Soviets. So they were, it wasn't a hotel. It was it was a billet uh, and offices for Stalin, um, Sverdlov, Trotsky, and Lenin of uh, Lenin, of course, they all they all spoke there, uh, and they lived on top of each other. Gradually, the big wigs moved their offices into the Kremlin. Obviously, it was a, a little bit of a, a leap to move from being a from being a Bolshevik revolutionary to inhabiting the huge rooms, uh, the huge offices of the Kremlin, which you've probably seen Putin walking through those giant doors, which are about a hundred times taller than him. They sorted themselves out and it began to be full of any Bolshevik who needed a home or, or wanted, a, wanted a free meal. And various foreign visitors were appalled that uh, it was like a, like a sort of student dorm gone to the bad. Uh, I think uh, one American journalist called it like a, a failing whorehouse. That was slightly unfair because the Bolsheviks did believe to a certain extent, in the abolition of bourgeois norms of marriage, which were uh, oppressive to women. But Lenin actually never went as far as advocating free love, even though Alexandra Kolonte did say that having sex should be no more important than um, drinking a glass of water. The uh, security people tried to keep out uh, what were known as non-party women, party in the sense of communist party rather than party as in having fun, because they were to party, not to be members, not to attend party meetings, but it didn't work. So it rather went down. All the all the crockery was stolen. People cooked food in their in their rooms, uh, you can imagine, and horror of horrors, wore boots in their room and even boots on lay on their beds in their boots, which is a terrible sin in Russia. Um, and so it continued until about the late 20s. And then it became a hotel spruced up, designed as, as a place for influential foreigners to come and stay. Lenin, of course, uh, he was dead by then, 
but he had called influential foreigners who supported the communist experiment uh, useful idiots. And uh, these were the sort of people who came. Most famously, George Bernard Shaw, Nobel Prize winner for literature. He celebrated his 70th birthday in Moscow, staying in the Metropole Hotel. I think he had almost two hour, a two-hour interview with Stalin, which has never happened before or since with a literary man. Uh, he was fated. Everything went perfectly, except to no surprise to anyone who stayed there. The lift broke down between floors and he had to be pulled out by an American visitor. Otherwise, it was a great success. So the Red Hotel tells the story of the correspondents and translators who were based at the Hotel Metropole in the Second World War. Can you take us back to the events of the year 1941? Because at the start of the war, Stalin and Hitler are allies and there are no allied correspondents in Moscow. That's right. When the Second World War broke out in Europe in 1939, Hitler and Stalin were allied in a non-aggression pact. Effectively, that meant that Stalin was the non-belligerent ally of Hitler. All the fuel which powered the bombers which bombed London during the Blitz, that came from Russia. The deal was Hitler would supply arms to Russia and Russia would supply oil, uh, wheat, whatever raw, raw materials the Russians had. The background to this was the First World War when the blockade against Germany was extremely effective. And uh, um, by 1918, Germany was short of raw materials and almost starving. So Hitler uh, was very keen to have all the resources from Russia at his disposal. And so this continued until May 1941. And then Hitler, in defiance, well, basically, he turned against his non-belligerent ally and launched an unprovoked attack. Everyone seemed to be expecting this, but Stalin refused to do anything to prepare for the invasion that was coming. He knew it was going to happen, but he hoped he had two or three more years. Hitler wasn't willing to wait because he could see that um, Soviet industry was, was growing at a pace and in three years' time, it might be harder for him to invade. There was a complete disaster on the first day of the war. Something like 12,000 aircraft were, Soviet aircraft were destroyed in the first few days. All the planes were, the planes were not hidden. They were all open to, open to view. Uh, German bombers were everywhere. And the Red Army started retreating, and it retreated uh, for a year and a half. Russia is a big country, obviously, and there's a lot of retreating in Russia. And the Red Army retreated all the way to the Volga, which was um, about about 800 miles um, before Stalin managed to turn them back. The unprovoked attack by Hitler on Russia changed the balance of power radically in Europe. Churchill obviously could see that Stalin uh, was now on on the Allied side. Churchill had been a great Bolshevik beta for years, ever since the um, the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, it was agreed that Britain and America, which was still not in the war, would supply aircraft, tanks, raw materials, even down to the wool to provide the Russian soldiers felt boots 
which was one of the secrets of surviving in minus 30 degrees, is to have a felt boot, which uh, keeps your feet warm, uh, however, however cold it is. So lots of wool, lots of wool came over. This was all delivered through the Arctic, a very dangerous route, because there were German submarines and torpedo boats. Churchill had a um, strange request to put to Stalin. In his youth, Churchill had been a very a daring war correspondent, particularly in the South African War, the Boer War. He'd been imprisoned by the South African rebels and he'd escaped and he filled the columns of the British newspapers with um, reports of the, of the battle and basically fanned the flames of patriotism. So he thought, this is what we need to do to give a sort of heart, to give a beating heart to the Alliance. And of course, to convince the British people that it was worth sending a squadron or two of hurricanes, lots of tanks uh, and other things which were badly needed on other war fronts to uh, help Stalin. The general consensus was that Hitler would be in Moscow by Christmas and probably halfway through Siberia a few weeks later. Well, Stalin didn't see any point in having foreign correspondence in Moscow. He had, as the 30s had progressed, he'd made it harder and harder for foreign reporters to work in Moscow. And by, by 1940, all the special correspondence, the newspaper correspondence had cleared out. It was very difficult to travel. Uh, the censorship was very tight. So Moscow, on the whole of Russia, had become a journalistic desert uh, for years. Everyone wanted to know how the place really worked. Everyone knew that there had been these strange show trials in the 30s when all of Stalin's comrades in arms, uh, or in Stalin's terms, his rivals, uh, had been put on trial in very public trials, which were, which were reported in detail in, in all the papers and confessed to the most ludicrous crimes of sabotage, treachery, guilt, spying for the British, for the Poles, for the Japanese, you name it. There's no doubt that this is what actually happened, but everyone wanted to know how, how were these people persuaded? Were they tortured? Were they brainwashed? What did the, what did the Bolsheviks have? Also, what was the truth about the collectivization, the collectivization of agriculture, which meant that the little farms that the, the peasants had were all amalgamated into collectives, effectively state farms, with a huge loss of output, which meant that um, uh, millions starved in Ukraine. So the big war correspondents in London fought tooth and nail to come to Moscow, partly to cover the war, well, mainly to cover the war because they knew this would decide the future of Europe, but also uh, because there was nowhere else in Europe they could they they could um, they could operate. It was all occupied by the Germans. The Foreign Office was in a bit of a bind. The ambassador in Moscow told them bluntly, "No correspondent is going to write an objective report. No correspondent is going to be allowed." Uh, allowed to write anything which hasn't been in the papers. But Churchill had decreed that they should come, and so they came. The Foreign Office worked out a rather uh, a brilliant bureaucratic uh, scheme so that they weren't responsible for stopping 
reporters to come to Moscow because they didn't want to take the blame. So they allowed the Soviet ambassador in London to decide who should go and who should lose their visa if they misbehaved. But at the same time, as I saw in the National Archives, they would announce to everyone that they would facilitate as far as possible everyone's travel by air, by sea, even through the Middle East to Moscow, while secretly making it very hard for anyone to get on a plane or a ship. But still, there were always could be uh, two dozen, sometimes more, uh, correspondents in Moscow. Stalin put them in the hotel, and they were a bit surprised their chilly welcome because they were more or less sort of told that they were only allowed to report, as the ambassador had said, um, what was in the papers. There would be uh, a daily announcement. Uh, they could copy out stuff from Pravda. Um, it was fraternization between Soviet citizens and Westerners was a criminal offence. If any Soviet citizen had an unauthorised meeting with a, with a British or an American, he or she was supposed to go straight to the police and give themselves up. The only people they were allowed to talk to were their translators, Soviet translators. They were all women because men were at the front at the time. So each correspondent was allowed to hire one translator and a courier or two to run around with their copy, take it to be censored to the and then to the telegraph and wait while all these things were done, pick up vodka and fruit if there was any at the foreigner's stores, etc. So sort of frustration grew, basically. And this is well described by Edgar Snow, who was a famous uh, American correspondent. He was a man who liked to make his own news. He'd worked a long time in China, and he'd, he had traveled into the depths of China, into the West, to track down uh, Mao Zedong, uh, later the Communist Party leader. But that, at that time, pretty much an unknown guerrilla chieftain in living in the wilds in caves. He wrote a book called Red Star Over China, which introduced Mao to, to the Americans and to the world. And um, he came to Moscow thinking he might be able to pull off the same thing with Stalin. You have to be optimistic to be a journalist anyway. <laughs> but Stalin was very different. Um, he made himself completely unavailable. He never gave a press conference. He never gave a sit-down interview to a journalist. He did, on very rare occasions, answer written questions in written form uh, when he felt it was necessary. These so-called interviews, i.e. answering a couple of questions by letter, became in journalistic law in interviews and uh, became, in, in some journalistic eyes, the high point of their careers, even though nothing much came of them, but still, because Stalin was so unattainable, um, even the blandest of comments uh, were front page news all over the world. He did also use carrots as well as sticks to control, to control <laughs> the media narrative. Can you tell us about those? There was the Metropole. The first winter of the war was one of the coldest on record. The temperature went below minus 35 degrees Celsius, down to minus 40. The Metropole was one of the few places which was generally heated. And if there wasn't if heated and the journalists had to go around in boots and hats, there was always hot water and they had ensuite bathrooms, which is an unheard of luxury. 
So if your room was very cold, you could fill the, fill the bath with water and that would somehow raise the temperature. They had what were known as diplomatic level rations, which is quite a lot of caviar every day, a bottle of vodka, of vodka a day, a proper meal provided by the hotel, and a cream bun. There were 400 cream buns baked in Moscow for the whole population of several million. Of those 400, 24 went to the journalists, the rest to various ambassadors and things. So while the rest of Moscow was living on 400 grams of black bread a day, uh, black bread is, is, is rye bread, but in, a war, in, in wartime, it was bulked out with various fillers of little, of little nutritional value. During the siege of Leningrad, which of course went on for more than a year, the bread ration was about 150 grams, which would be a couple of slices of bread a day, which really is a starvation ration. So not surprisingly, the metropole was a, was a honeypot for every kind of young woman to have a bath, uh, get a free meal, even be able just to take a, a slice of bread and a, and a bit of cheese back to their family. So it was a, a unique example of tolerated fraternization. I wouldn't say it was allowed, it was tolerated fraternization between the correspondents, their translators, and various student types whom they hired as, um, as couriers. Edgar Snow, the American was appalled at the passivity of the of the other journalists. He said, "Well, you know, their the, the translator um, orders you breakfast in the morning, plumps up your pillow while you eat it, translates for you, interprets interprets for you, teaches Russian for you, maybe goes to bed with you, and um, does everything. You know, basically nannies you." He learned um, after a few months that since there was no one else to talk to. The translators had enormous influence on the reporters. So that's this is the sort of uh, the basic story of the Red Hotel. It looks at three Soviet translators and who they worked with and the uh, effect on their on their output on their and their outlook. One of the most yeah. remarkable of these translators was Nadia Ulanovska, who suffered deeply for her part in attempting to expose Stalinism. Who was she, and what's her story? Well, she has. She has an extraordinary life, which almost provides a sort of introduction to Soviet history. She was a Jewish girl born in a in a small Jewish settlement in called Bershad, which is now in Ukraine. Not a place where much happened, uh, as as she recalled. The only thing that happened was that the peasants came on market day, but all they wanted to do was drink. She was the granddaughter of a rabbi, and. A progressive rabbi, and a, well, a brilliant student. Probably the first girl to have to have gone to a, a normal school in uh, in in her family. When the revolutions of 1917 came, she blossomed. The family moved to Odessa, the biggest, probably the most cosmopolitan city in Ukraine then and now. Uh, she became a committed socialist revolutionary as a teenager. Uh, even at the age of 15, she was with a sort of a, a young group of revolutionaries. And one day they were all rounded up with a couple of older revolutionaries. And um, this charismatic leader had a gun, a Mauser, and he knew he was going to be searched. So he said, well, any of you 
let any of you women uh, secrete this gun uh, on your person where the police won't search. So Nadia was the first to put up her hand and said, yes, I'll take it. And she stepped forward and he looked her up and down and said, step away, miss, where would you hide it? Uh, so that someone else, someone else hid it. They somehow escaped from the police. But she remained a companion of this guy called um, Alexander Wilenowski. All their names were, everyone in the Bolshevik party gave themselves a new name. You know, Stalin changed his name from Jugashvili to, to Stalin. Lenin uh, wasn't his birth name. They, with great uh, delight, got rid of their very Jewish names to, to, to be reborn as sort of just citizens of Russia. Anyway, they fought together. She fought in the Civil War. Um, they married insofar as anyone got married in those days. Marriage wasn't really um, something the Bolsheviks did. You could um, you could get divorced um, just with a word. But in fact, they stayed together for the rest of their lives. At the end of the Civil War, with the victory of the Bolsheviks, strangely, her husband said he was never going to join the Communist Party. He was an anarchist, which was a uh, they'd fought with the Reds. And she said, how odd. So neither of them joined the party, but because they were free thinkers. To cut a long story short, they ended up working for Soviet military intelligence. Military intelligence, of course, are the same people, uh, the thugs who did the, who tried to kill the Skripals in Salisbury. But uh, in ancient days, the military intelligence people were a bit more sophisticated. They worked in Shanghai and then in New York, where they were stealing technical secrets for the arms industry. When war came, Nadia, with her American-accented English and her general sophistication, was chosen to be a senior translator. And she said, I don't want to work with foreigners. It's dangerous to work with foreigners. Stalin distrusted anyone who'd worked with foreigners. All the leaders, all the commanders of Soviet military intelligence had one by one been shot for basically having too much to do with foreigners. And the deputy foreign minister who was in charge of recruiting the translators said, Nadia, we don't even know if there's going to be any Soviet Union uh, in three weeks time. Hitler could be in Moscow very soon. You have to schmooze these American journalists. You have to persuade, you have to, on what they write depends on uh, the deliveries of tanks, aircraft and things from the Americans. So she did that. And um, so it continued. She was a bit of a prude, you could say. Um, she took delight in rescuing student girls who thought it would be fun to shack up with an American reporter, took them aside and said, you do realize that when the Americans have gone, the NKVD is going to um, send you off to the Arctic at worst, or maybe just to uh, exile you to Samarkand. They all had to report every week to a, a controller in the secret police, not so secret. It was called the NKVD at the time. They had to say what the reporters thought, who were they meeting, and basically say, to what extent are they spies? I mean, all report, foreign reporters were considered spies. This Nadia did. Sometimes she just made things up in the hope that um, some messages of the discontent of the reporters would get up, would rise up the hierarchy. It didn't really. As the war dragged on, she couldn't tolerate 
the lies that the journalists were being told, the massaging of the of the news, their inability to write anything. And she became more and more outspoken, at least with journalists that she trusted, and began to tell them things that she shouldn't have told them. This came to a head with a, an Australian journalist called Godfrey Blunden, who I think she felt quite she felt quite at ease with him. She was enough of a Bolshevik to believe that the British were all snobs. She didn't like snobs. And she distrusted Americans to a certain extent because she thought they were all so career-minded that whatever she told them would appear instantly in the New York Times. Why she trusted an Australian is a mystery I cannot explain. Before he left, you know, they spent a lot of evenings, a lot of evenings together. And he said he wanted to go and see how ordinary people lived in Russia. Of course, everyone knew that the accommodation crisis was horrendous. There were literally five people living to a room and they would have one kitchen and, and one bathroom would be shared by sort of 25 people or something like that. So that was kept under wraps. Uh, if you asked for a long time, the foreign ministry would fix up a, a fake visit to uh, a Soviet family and uh, there would be this nice three-room apartment operated, uh, inhabited by a worker who would show the people around. This happened to Nadia and someone from the Daily Express. And um, so Nadia will ask, I would ask, well, the, well, where are all the others? Oh, well, yes, yes, there are three other families. They're just not here at the moment, you know. So, so it was all fake. Anyway, so she, at night, she took the Australian journalists to visit um, a couple of old ladies uh, who lived in an apartment which happened to overlook Stalin's route between his dacha, his uh, his place at, in the suburbs and the Kremlin. Um, the old ladies had both uh, suffered terribly. Both uh, their, their husbands had both been executed for being of the wrong class. And one of their sons had, uh, sons had disappeared. And she said to him, you know, you can't write this. And he said, don't worry, I'll, I'll put it in a novel. Well, eventually the novel was written and uh, it was called A Room on the Route. Well, anyone could work out which the route was. And anyway, to cut a long story short, the NKVD arrested the two old ladies. Obviously, Nadia was the translator for the journalist, so she was arrested. She spent three years in the Lubyanka, uh, under interrogation and got a 15, 15 year sentence. Her husband was also got 15 years and her daughter actually got, having been abandoned by her parents, uh, fell in with some student, you might call them mild dissidents. They had a, a Leninist conversation class. She was given 25 years at the age of, uh, as a teenager. So that is the story. So she very much created the the point of view of Blunden, the, the journalist. And, and when his book came out, of course, uh, it had great shock value. No one had written anything about Russia like that uh, during the war or indeed, or indeed afterwards, partly because they couldn't and partly because Stalin was a, was a, was a Western ally. So those that wanted the, um, the wartime alliance to continue were shocked 
but um, more foresightful people said, this is the truth that's being hidden. Uh, and then the Cold War came, and um, to a certain extent, you could say that while many of the other journalists were rather passive, a bit idle, um, just waiting to be invited on a trip, because uh, they hoped one day uh, they'd be the first with the Red Army to the ruins of Berlin. While they were rather passive and waited, Blunden thought of a way to get the real story out and did it. So one of, one of the reasons I was interested in this story is that uh, I'd been a foreign correspondent basically in the Middle East and Europe and Russia. And when I stopped being, there were some issues which had troubled me and I thought I would try and write about it. And one of them was, how do you report under a dictatorship, which is very difficult? And how do you protect your informants from being damaged after you've filed your stories and moved on? And also at the same time, how can you tell the real story um, and not give in to what the editor or the desk wants to do? And the story of the, of the journalist in the Metropole fitted into what I was quite keen to write about. The answer, of course, is incredibly depressing. <laughs> because Stalin's yes, yes, it it attempt to censor and sanitise foreign coverage was successful. It was completely successful. And um, maybe we'll get on to uh, whether Putin has has copied the, the Stalin playbook. Let's talk about that right now. Right, OK. The parallels are exaggerated by Putin's regime itself. Yeah, Putin um, has revived a, the cult of Stalin and he has turned uh, the victory in 1944 uh, into a sort of Russian national religion. Now, this is very unfair because the the it was the Soviet Union that won the war. It was only half of the nationalities were, were Russian, but now it's a great Russian sort of Christian thing. And, and we've seen that even... Uh, during this during this war, uh, there's a new bust of Stalin, which has been set up in, um, I was going to say Stalingrad. It's still called Volgograd, but no doubt it will be Stalingrad soon. Well, there are many ways in which he's, which he's following Stalin, obviously the Stalin crowd. And he has established total control of the broadcast and printed, printed media. He's harassed foreign correspondents, uh, forcing them to leave, and indeed not only harassed them, but arrested others to, to, um, to show how limited their options are. He's installed incredibly severe punishments for criticism of the war uh, or how it's been conducted, um, even to the extent of uh, the poor child who, who, who drew an anti-war picture at, at school. You know, her father is, father is in jail and she was sent to an orphanage. And of course, Putin has revived the Stalin era uh, fashion for denunciation. The idea is that um, if you come across someone who is criticizing the war, uh, if you don't denounce them to the police, then you're then you're complicit. And indeed the family is complicit. So all for all these reasons. And of course, Stalin was completely successful in uh, controlling the wartime narrative. Censorship did not just cover matters of operational security like where the where the troops were and what the guns were like. I mean, they didn't see that. They couldn't even they couldn't even write that. The journalists were expected to write from Moscow 
to present Stalin's view of the world and of the future of Europe, even to the extent that uh, their dispatches would be rewritten by the censors if they if they stepped out of line. Anyway, so all these things have happened, but um, of course, Putin is not Stalin. He doesn't use a mobile phone. He doesn't use a smartphone, certainly. Uh, he doesn't use the internet. He relies on verbal uh, reports and printed and printed reports. So you have the strange, the strange situation where during the so-called special operation, um, the digital media, what's left of it, is still flourishing. YouTube is still visible. Uh, Wikipedia, for example, has not been banned. If it was China fighting this war, all these digital voices from outside would be banned. Putin has not cut the country off. Well, given the very different media landscape that we're in today versus the 1940s, what lessons can we learn from the story of the Red Hotel about how to win a propaganda war against Russia? Well, in these days, I think it's probably it's probably impossible to have total control of all, all the media. But more important than that, I think, is to have a simple message. In Stalin's time, there was his war aims, or what he said to the Soviet people, were summed up in two words. He just said, to Berlin, we're going to go to Berlin. Everyone understood that this is what he was going to do, that there would be enormous sacrifices, huge numbers of casualties, but the Soviet people army would get to Berlin and destroy fascism, and at the same time would, would create some kind of buffer zone in Eastern Europe sort of to be defined. That's a simple message. Everyone understood it, and uh, they were ready to fight and to give their sons and husbands to drive the Germans away. Well, what do we have now? We have complete confusion uh, on television. There's a sort of nihilistic infotainment where people are suggesting that the war can only end when London is in ruins. All kinds of nonsense is shouted day after day. And you have, if Facebook and Twitter are banned, uh, Telegram is very, is very important. There's a very well-connected uh, Russian correspondent, uh, Anastasia Kashivarova, uh, who's been very, very pro-war. And suddenly about a couple of weeks ago, she wrote something on Telegram. And it's astonishing that it had taken her 14 months to come to this conclusion. She said, there's no one message that brings the soldiers, the soldiers together. They don't have any collective reason for fighting. If, if they continue to fight, um, they have their own reason, own reason for doing it. Maybe the reason that their parents couldn't afford to bribe them out of it. And then she said, but of course, it's very easy for the Ukrainians. They're just defending their land. Well, this is an example of how if you allow people to come to their own conclusions, even those who are most convinced that the war is just, you know, when they see what's happening on the ground, they will change their views. So keep the goals simple. Don't keep changing the reasons 
why you're invading don't keep don't say once oh it's it's all about nato and then oh um it's all about uh, uh, bringing together the the russian empire or it's all about controlling the black sea you have to keep it simple on which bleak note alan thank you so much for your time this afternoon thank you this episode starred alan phelps and was produced and presented by me vas christodoulou I make the series with Esme Bright, and we have help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. For more history and politics, do check out our episodes with Maria Racer on her fight for a free press in the Philippines, Luke Turner on male identity in World War II, and Peter Frankopan on how climate has shaped human civilization. Till next time, thanks for listening.